Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, and welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Lisa Wade. Hello, Dr. Wade. It's a thrill to have you on Sandbox Stories. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Very nice to join you and your audience today. Well, I think they're going to be in for a treat because you might be one of the most forthright optometrists I've ever met. And so I can't wait for this conversation. It's, <laughs> uh, it's not bad ever. Um, you have a giving back mindset. You have something really intrinsic to you about giving back. Where did that come from? I think it came from my mother. Uh, my mother was a teacher. She, uh, from a very early age, uh, she had my sister and I participate uh, in giving back sort of events. We were very active in our church, uh, outreach through the church, feeding the homeless, uh, doing meals on wheels. Um, she raised Mental health was a big passion of ours. We had a number of family members who had challenges in that area and uh, supporting efforts to improve the awareness and education around mental health was another, uh, you know, something very passionate to my mother that we participated in from a very early age. Um, I also saw my mother's parents uh, exhibit that and just the whole, how can I say the whole attitude of where I am at Southern College of Optometry is really about service. And it's a big part of who we are and what we are and what we try to impart to our students. So thank you. That's a big compliment for you to say to me because it is something that's important. And it's something that's important that, you know, there's a lot of ways to give um, today. And I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but today um, I was talking to the students about, um, building their practice, their physical build out. And, you know, I built a LEED certified building. And even that was a way of giving back that I was in a business that maybe not the cleanest business in the world, but it was a way to pay it forward and do my part for kind of diminishing maybe some of the negative impact that my business had on uh, the environment. So I can tell your New Jersey accent from how you speak. Yeah, we talked about, about that before. Roots. Tell me about your roots. <laughs> I was born in New Jersey. Um, my parents, as I said, my mother was a single mother. And um, when my parents divorced, we moved to West Virginia, went to where my mother was from. And my mother swears that the reason they put me in speech therapy, because nobody knew, knew what a dog was or a glass of water. So they had to teach me how to say dog in West Virginia. Plus, I've been in Memphis now for 40 years. So, um, the South is my home, even though I, you know, I, I can turn that New Jersey on when I need to, but uh, it's kind of hard for me to run away from my roots here. So in your work with these students at Southern College of Optometry, let's start with this. You tell them to define their why. Tell us a little bit more yeah. about that. I'm a big believer in knowing, again, what your why is. And we spend a lot of time in the, I teach the practice management class and we spend a lot of time um, talking about your 
why, not only what is your personal brand, but also what is the brand that you want to convey to your patients and to your community. And, you know, it's, a lot of times it's kind of interesting that the students haven't really thought about that. Obviously, something has happened internally that has driven them to optometry but a profession, but a lot of them haven't really reflected on what that why is. And it's interesting at the end of the first semester, I uh, always ask on the final exam, you know, what, what was one of your big takeaways from this class? And it's amazing how many people that that was the first time somebody really asked me that. And I'm a big believer that if you know what your why is, it just informs so much about who you are, what you become, the choices that you make, the people you marry, how you raise your kids, that that's it's just an important question to be able to answer about yourself so that you can make choices that bring you joy. Because if you're going against your why, my guess is you're probably not living a very joyful life. Do you have any empiric insights as to whether or not that why has changed for students as you've worked with them over the years? I don't know that I have any empiric evidence. Uh, today, I had a call from a student who graduated last year. Um, we had a lot of conversations about what her why was, and that she was a student who um, was rather enlightened by this you know, approach to who she was and what she wanted to do. And we worked very diligently together to find her practice opportunity that was going to answer her why. And she wants to be a practice owner. And she called me today and uh, set her up with someone to help make that happen. So less than a year out of school, she's buying a practice of her dreams and could not be more thrilled about it. So if I have those sorts of incremental um, impacts on students, that just that gives me joy and gives me a lot of satisfaction. That's wonderful. We um, have already done a sandbox story about Simon Sinek and the infinite game. And I, I guess you use the start with why book from Sinek. Let me hear it from your perspective. What about the way Sinek gives us advice to think about our why could be something you could advise the listeners to do themselves like you do with your students? Well, I think about, you know, his golden circle that, again, everything should emanate from why that every business can tell you what they do. Most businesses can tell you how they do it, but very few businesses can tell you why they do it. And if you can really begin to answer, why do I walk into my practice every day to deliver patient care? What is it truly that I'm trying to perform here um, or to give to my patients to pass on? What do I want them to walk away with? You know, I have had a lot of colleagues that have always impressed me that, you know, when you ask them why they do, their comments are not really so much around vision, but about those quality of life issues that I'm really trying to make someone maximize not only their impact on their own abilities, but on their abilities, again, to operate in the world the most successfully that they can, that it's so much bigger than giving someone, you know, drops for dry eye. It's so much bigger than having someone, you know, 
doing a combinator rock in a BT session. It really is about impacting and improving lives. And I think people who get the most joy out of optometry as a profession are the people who take that approach and have that understanding that that's why I chose to do this, because that's what I want to bring to and put out into the world. And, you know, Cynic talks about those golden circles and matches it to the brain and speaks about how when it's hard to articulate your why, it's because it comes from sort of that midbrain area where speech doesn't exist. That right? limbic brain. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and speech exists up in the cortex. And, and so when you have a hard time articulating why, it's because you don't have the speech there. And so you tend to fall to what I do. What I do is give right. people great vision. But that's not why right. you do it. And uh, so I really right. encourage people to follow your lead. Dig in on Start With Why. It's, uh, it's really powerful. Well, it's served me well. And again, if, even if I can't make every student actualize uh, themselves, hopefully they're at least a little bit better off by knowing, you know, having gone through that process, process of examination, of what is important to them and why am I making the choices that I'm making. So you also put your students through a DISC behavioral assessment and yes. some businesses use psychological profile tests, some don't. Mm -hmm. um, give us a little insight as to what, what you do, why you do it, and how applicable it is to private practice or somebody that's out in practice. Well, again, I was in optometry for a number of years. Um, and had interviewed literally thousands of optometric students for um, admissions, interviewed a number of individuals for hiring positions at the college in my various roles there. And I thought I was someone that knew people. Um, again, I had an adventure away from optometry and business, and I found out I maybe didn't know quite what I thought I knew, or I needed a better approach to be more successful in my hiring practices. And I guess you could say that I could identify the people that were good hires where I was having more of a challenge was finding the right seat on the bus for them, where they could be successful, where they could address what their why was so that they could be you know, successful within my business. And I had a consultant come to me and I'm um, trying to figure it out. And he introduced me to the DISC. It made just enormous changes in the attitude, in the fulfillment, the happiness, the production of my staff as I be able, got to be able to identify who they were, what their motivators were, where their challenges were, what their fears were much better that I could help put them in the appropriate positions within the business to help them be successful in order to help me be successful. And with the students, we take it a little bit differently. Um, not only we, all of our students take a DISC analysis prior to enrolling in the college. We, their first year we do training with them about what is the DISC, what does your disc say about you? And it's always kind of interesting that students will go, I don't believe that. And I'm always like, ask your best friend. Ask somebody who will tell you the truth. 
because if you've ever done one, I think for most people, they'll feel like they have a camera on their shoulder and that somebody's been spying on them. That, you know, they say things about ourselves that we often don't want to admit to ourselves. Um, in the third year, we use the disc in a little bit different way, um, really in two ways. Uh, on communication, in the hiring process, in the HR, um, identifying, again, people's strengths, their skills, their fears, uh, determining what, what seat on the bus, what position in the practice they might best be suited for. But um, we also do training with them on using the DISC to be able to evaluate someone in a pretty rapid way uh, what the DISC type most likely is, but how do you communicate with that individual? If someone is a high C, they don't want to hear about these are the feel goods, these are the, you know, things that are going to make you happy. These, here's the facts, here's the data, this is why this is the best. Where somebody's a high I, they want to hear, this is the greatest thing. This is what I would give my mother if she was going to do for me. So to me, if I can communicate not with the golden rule, but with the platinum rule, that and that is I need to communicate with a patient the way they want to be communicated with, not the way I want to communicate with them. They're much more likely to hear my recommendations, and they're also much more likely to be compliant with the recommendations that I do make for them. So is it, pretty, pretty self-explanatory for a doctor or somebody in a business that wants to use the DISC behavioral assessment to not only provide it, but also find out how to apply the learnings from it? It is, and you know there are DISC training programs, and there are a number of our ophthalmic partners that um, depending on who you engage with, actually offer that as a service to many of their members or their customers and will help you with that process. Okay. It's pretty cheap to do. And again, some of them even do it at a very reduced cost for their industry partners. Well, uh, let's shift. The Southern College of Optometry is just an incredible academic institution, and I know you're very proud of it. And I'd like you to outline it a little bit. You've been there for a, a, a while, and I'm curious if you could outline some of your experiences because it gives people a good sense of how committed you've been to academics. But at the end of telling us about what you know your time there, and don't tell us about the midpoint because we're going to talk about that separately. My question for you is, as you think about what you've experienced, what's changed the most? Well, this is from a personal standpoint. A lot of what's changed is what optometry school looks like. Um, when I was a student, when I graduated in 1984, I think it was, I was one of 12 women in a class of 152. Well, now optometry, like most professions, are predominantly female. So that has been a big change. Um, I think some of the other changes, obviously the technology, the, um, how can I say, it? what we do obviously has changed. Um, I come from West Virginia, as I said, and you know, I've been fortunate that as long as optometry has been on my radar, I've never known optometry without therapeutic pharmaceuticals. Most optometrists can't say that. And um, that was, that's been a big, big, big change. Um, 
Our relationship with ophthalmology has been a big change. Um, how we practice, where we practice has been a big change. So lots and lots of different things. But as I said, I graduated from SCO in 1984. I did a residency in pediatrics and vision therapy uh, immediately after graduation. I was the only individual in my class that did a residency. Um, immediately came on faculty at SCO and also immediately enrolled into a master's in public administration uh, program at the then Memphis State, now University of Memphis. Um, very quickly uh, began my career in the, as a clinical faculty. Upon graduating with my master's degree, began teaching. I uh, have taught a number of different classes. I've taught epidemiology, research methodology, public health, community health, uh, and now teach the practice management courses. In terms of outside my um, clinical care, I have held a number of administrative positions. I was uh, began, began as the director of continuing education uh, about two years into my career at SCO. I also was the first student recruiter that SCO ever had. I served as chair of the admissions committee uh, in 1993, I became vice president, the first vice president for institutional advancement at SCO and had uh, a big challenge ahead of me. We did not have, I'll just be honest, we just, we did not have the reputation, the academic reputation at that time that we do now. Um, we've always been fortunate to have a very strong clinical reputation. But um, we had never really raised a dollar on our behalf. And um, I held that position for 13 years and was very fortunate that through the support of very generous alumni and the ophthalmic community, uh, when I left, about 25% of our students were receiving scholarships. In 2006, I had the opportunity to have an adventure away from optometry. I uh, took advantage of that. Uh, that adventure ended in 2013. I tried retirement for about nine months, uh, failed miserably <laughs> as that, as my husband uh, says, and he basically told me, find a job or somebody in this house is probably not going to live to see the next sunset. So I had to go out looking for a job uh, to keep my marriage intact. And um, was very fortunate uh, that the college was looking for someone to teach the practice management course. So I began part-time teaching the practice management course in the summer of 14. And then in January of 15, the opportunity uh, to become director of the Hayes Center came available. And I took on that responsibility and currently have that position as to today that I'm director of the Hayes Center for Practice Excellence, as well as teaching um, the practice management courses. Well, I'm always very grateful for people like you that have spent so much of a time uh, of their career in academics. I you know, am so grateful to have been friends with Dr. Glenn Steele, Dr. Bubba, um, who has yes. been such a big part of driving the infancy program out to the profession. Right. And there are so many wonderful SEO grads that walk amongst us that, uh, uh, we know that the profession is better because of all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, I want to shift to your personal habits. You are a voracious reader. 
and you yes. have this commitment to wellness. You walk every evening. And, and, and I'm yeah. just curious what creates those kind of habits. Is it your personality profile or is it something that you learn? Because I think optometrists need to think about how they keep themselves well. Why have you gotten to these patterns and habits? Well, uh, yes and yes. Part of it is just nature. I'm not a great sleeper. Uh, so I tend to read a lot at night. I probably read three books a week. And um, what really got us in the habit of wellness, um, I grew up, I was a cheerleader, uh, water skied, snow skied, you know, was fairly athletic as a youth, love riding a bicycle, have done that, roller skate, you know, all those kinds of things was never I would never say I was a competent athlete, but I was an enthusiastic athlete. We'll put it that way. Um, but four years ago, my husband had open heart surgery. And my husband is one of these individuals that to look at him is the absolute picture of health. Um, he's tall, skinny. He was running, you know, five miles a day. And um, it's not that he had heart disease, but he had mitral valve that had to be uh, replaced. So, uh, the, you know, I took very literally when he was in the hospital in the ICU and they're telling me he will walk his way to wellness. And that's what we do. We walk, unless it is raining sideways, we walk five miles pretty much every single day after dinner. That's wonderful. So That's a great lesson for optometrists, you know, walking your way to wellness and doing baby steps, uh, so important. Yeah. Uh, so it's no surprise you have incredibly driven children. What are they doing? Yes. My, both my children have an MBA. Um, my son is in the automotive consulting industry, and he is married to a lovely young woman who's PhD in psychology, who just opened her private practice in September in Bloomington, Illinois, and I was fortunate enough to help her do that. Uh, she just hired her first employee, and she is already so busy she needs to hire her third um, to add three people that she has just gone gangbusters. Uh, so they're very happy, uh, both very successful in their careers. I have a daughter who um, just moved back to the United States. Uh, she is has she's very talented across many uh, dimensions. She speaks seven languages. Uh, she lived in Europe for quite a bit of time. She's lived in Madrid, in Florence, uh, in Berlin. She did her MBA in Barcelona and has just returned to the United States. And she is a product manager for Quizlet. I'm certain many of you all, particularly those of you who are homeschooling your kids, have heard of Quizlet. Do you get extra credit for so, doing your master's in Spain in Spanish? Uh, I don't know. Wow, that's but, fantastic. <laughs> it, it, and, you know, it's interesting when, you know, really in Barcelona, they speak Catalan, which she actually speaks. But I had, I had gone for six weeks one summer while she was there thinking, oh, my Spanish is going to get so much better. And it was just so much easier to let her speak. <laughs> Than me, and when she was living in Berlin, she got so frustrated with me. She goes, "Mom, at least try." I said, "I just need people to know that I'm a an American from the very first words out of my mouth." 
that if I try, then they start, you know, going very quickly in another language. I just need to know them to know I am not gifted in any way from the very beginning. So let's talk about this gap in your academic and optometry career. You left SEO okay. and you got into business yes. on your own. So there's a little story of how you kind of decided to get out. And then tell us about this business market that isn't at all common for optometrists. I'd love to hear that story. Well, I was very, uh, I had the best job in the world at SCO. And I, it's not like I was looking uh, for something or that I was unhappy. I loved what I did. I loved the people I worked with. And I loved, again, feeling like I was having an impact on people's lives. But again, I'm, I tend to get bored at times. Um, I love to fix things. Absolutely love to fix things. And um, after 13 years, I had fixed a lot of what I felt was broken in the area of alumni relations and fundraising that we, we had definitely moved the needle on where we were when I took over the position. So I, my uncle was a Harley Davidson dealership dealer, and there was a dealer very close to Memphis in South Haven, Mississippi that had approached him about buying the dealership and he had no interest in buying it, but he said, I think I know somebody who might, he had been trying to get me to come into business with him for any number of years, and I had no interest in moving to Florida. No offense to Florida, but just I like seasons. And um, it became an opportunity. Um, it was one of those things that, you know, you, as I try to tell the students about opening and practice, you just have to jump off the bridge and make the commitment that you're going to do whatever it is to make it successful. So I bought what was then the lowest performing dealership in the 800 dealer network. I fired all the employees, um, hired four back. I had never sold a motorcycle, never done title work, never ordered a part, never ordered a mechanic. Now I had ridden a motorcycle since I was eight years old, but that's a heck of a lot different than running a motorcycle dealership and um, was very fortunate that within five years, we were recognized as one of the top five performing dealers in the United States. And I tell people all the time, it's not because I was some business whiz. Uh, a lot of it was just plain hard work. But the reality is I applied the same principles that I had used and learned at SCO about running the college in terms of HR, financial management, budgeting, um, staff development, uh, that I, I did the exact same things. And lo and behold, it was successful in another industry. And that's why I can get so frustrated sometimes when ODs will call me and ask me questions about what do I need to do to fix this? Or what do I need to do to help somebody do this? And I'll say something, well, that's not going to work for me. My practice is special. Optometry is not like that. Business is business. And um, I think the quicker we can learn that as a profession, that the, you know, we a lot of times don't like to talk about that 
we have a retail establishment in our medical practices. Well, there is retail science that can help you be a better optometrist because if you have more control over the product your patient wears, over what you prescribe, they're going to have a better experience. You're going to be able to control their experience over the life of um, their relationship with you. And it's very frustrating to me that people tend to think that optometry is some zebra that, you know, normal rules of business don't apply to. It's interesting that without casting any dispersions and doctors who have um, retrofitted their practice to look like a Apple store or whatever the case may be in terms of design, that the experience the patient has almost always is in part the human part and then the result of them wearing a retail sold product. And I've got to guess that that's a lot of what you're talking about, that you have to be maybe more particular with what products you choose and how you apply them. So the great care that you've given in the exam actually comes through in the product. Is that a way to say it? Right. Well, but also you have to believe in those products that you have, because if we are dispensing from the chair, it's kind of hard to talk about uh, with any uh, veracity or enthusiasm about a product you don't know or a product you don't believe in. So, um, you know, our patients, it's, again, that's, this is sort of turning the page to a little bit different topic, but, you know, our patients look to us for direction. That's what they come to us for. And if we just turn people out and go, well, you could do this, you can do that, we wouldn't do that with a medical condition. We wouldn't put four glaucoma drops in front of them and go, pick a winner. We make a recommendation based on what we know to be best for that patient. And again, why being able to talk to someone, understanding their behavioral style, how they need you to talk to them, to give them confidence in what you're recommending is can be so powerful. But again, being knowledgeable, one, about the various products that we offer, but two, being enthusiastic about it, believing in them, displaying them in a way that invites people to want to partake of them. Um, you know, today, I don't know if you've ever had a, uh, anybody talk about the JAM study no. that in the grocery store, uh, you know, that we used to think more is more. And, you know, we came out of probably, uh, when we came out of the depression through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and, you know, the variety of products began to take off Retailers believe that if I don't have every choice on my shelf, people are going to walk away. Well, we've begun to understand that that's not the case, that more is confusing, more is noise in our head, that a more curated, careful selection is uh, a better opportunity not only for the sale of a product, but also for the adoption and for the uh, acceptance of a product, that how people respond to it. And there's a JAM study, and again, I was talking to the students about this today, that in the grocery store, they had, uh, I think it was 24 
jellies, jams, out for tasting. Uh, they, offered, they offered people six choices. Uh, I forget exactly the numbers. I could look it up here, but 1.2% of the people actually purchased. When they offered them only six choices, 30% of the people purchased. Again, they weren't overwhelmed by, because you get that FOMO thing that, you know, gosh, I'm making the wrong choice, but when I can have a much more contained, you know, selection, and we see that in retail science, you know, think about how just Target has changed in the last remodel that we went from just these jam-packed things, but there's a whole lot more air. There's a whole lot more walking around. We don't have 58 candles displayed. We have four candles displayed on, um, you know, a table in the center of a lovely curated display. And when you look at the changes that are happening, particularly in our retail space in the optical, it's that same thing. It's not this endless display of thousands and thousands of frames. It's giving, you know, the opportunity for a frame to be seen, to give it some air to breathe and actually be seen by someone who might want to take it home and wear it. That's really interesting. You you also impressed on me that you didn't, as one of my optometry friends, I believe it was Dr. Lance Anderson said, don't save your way to prosperity, right? You invested no. in the Harley dealership. Um, you mentioned earlier yes. the building you built, and, and I'd like you to talk about the growth that you got through investment and then how you ended up getting out of that business. Okay. Well, um, you're exactly right. Um, when I purchased the building, I did not purchase purchase the practice or the business. I did not purchase the building. Um, I knew before that I even considered buying the building or the sorry, the business that if I were to do that, I had to relocate in order to have any sort of growth, be any successful. I was behind, I was down the highway, off the beaten path, very little visibility, tucked behind a Taco Bell and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I, I told everybody that the happiest day of my life will be when I can tell, not have to say I am behind the Kentucky Fried Chicken on Winchase Drive. So um, immediately, uh, when it became a reality that the purchase was going to go through, I began looking for property and bought five and a half acres, um, one interstate interchange down right uh, on the southwest corner of um, I-55 and Church Road in uh, South Haven, Mississippi. Uh, up on a rise, an incredibly um, visible piece of property, an incredibly expensive piece of property. Remember, this was 2006. My goal was to, I had a four-year lease, and to get construction done, uh, and open in 2010 or 2009 in that location. Well, we all know what happened in 2008, and um, I had all my construction loaned up, loan lined up. My uh, architects, we, I mean, we were ready to break ground, 
And 10 days before we were breaking ground on the property, the bank who was lending to me came and said, we no longer have the liquidity to give you the money. Because again, I was taking in excess of a $9 million loan to build a 54,000 square foot building. So here I was in the recession, investing $9 million in a big single purpose building uh, in the middle of a recession for a toy store. <laughs> <laughs> for nothing anybody had to own. So needless to say, it was a challenge to go out and find a bank that would make that kind of investment essentially in me in that environment. Um, I was very fortunate and I'll give a plug out to Regions Bank here in Memphis. Uh, they believed in me. They saw the growth that um, we had had and um, they believed that I was capable on repaying them alone. So uh, fortunately they did and we opened in our new building in uh, February of 2010. Um, as I mentioned, it was the only LEED certified, or well, the first LEED certified retail building in the state of Mississippi, the second LEED building overall. Um, it was an adventure. It was exciting. And for all the people out there who have such headaches with construction, um, I am so sorry because it was so much fun. I loved it. It was wonderful every day to get to see you know, all the little bits and pieces coming. Um, we, because of the lead, we used a lot of recycled materials and I got to have a lot of adventures. Uh, my floors and the brick uh, on the interior of the building came out of the Dan River Mills in, text in uh, Dan River, Virginia. Um, I can't tell you how many old barns I bought in Mississippi, Mississippi that I literally tore down or the metal with a crowbar out there pulling uh, old corrugated metal off of buildings. Uh, bought the roof off the old Ford plant uh, on 3rd Street in um, Memphis. And it was interesting, probably one of the most memorable things of my whole experience in construction was the day we were getting ready to open. I was standing there with my contractor and we're looking at just all of this. And he goes, is this what it looked like in your head? I said, you know, it's kind of hard to say when you're building with garbage what, you know, what this is actually going to look like, but it's what it felt like to me. And I, I could not have been more proud of how it came out. Um, again, I took an approach with um, my business uh, that, uh, again, I, I'm sorry to kind of go off on another tangent, but Again, talking to the students about this, I, the first thing I did when I came on property every day, I came about 30 minutes before any employee, and the first thing I did was pick up the trash on the entire property. I wanted to see my staff seeing me pick up the trash in the parking lot, and uh, I had actually sold an out parcel to a restaurant, and you can imagine what kind of trash we had in the parking lot. But they saw that every day. Once we opened for business, the next thing I did, I cleaned the customer bathrooms so that when customers started coming in, they could see me cleaning the bathrooms. And it was stunning how many people would, you know, just were in disbelief that the owner would be there um, 
cleaning the bathroom. But my whole thing was, again, back to my why, when people asked me what I did when I owned a Harley Davidson dealership, I never said I own a Harley Davidson dealership. I said, I deliver dreams. And that was my why, because that's an aspirational purchase. And my job was to make sure that it aspired and delivered on everything anybody had ever dreamed about owning a Harley Davidson. And so having a clean bathroom in my dealership was part of that experience. And that sounds crazy, but I can't tell you how many motorcycles I sold because customers knew that I cared about them and cared about their experience. And the reality is that I sold motorcycles, even though I was in a little town in Mississippi, sold motorcycles in all 50 states and on six continents. And you asked about our growth. Uh, when I bought the business in 2006, uh, we were doing just under $4 million. And when I sold the business in 2010, again, this is through the recession. We're still not quite out of the recession. We were doing $22 million in sales. And your exit was so, unplanned? My exit was unplanned. I had not um, thought about that. My son was in business with me. A big part of me, you know, being willing to jump off that ledge and do this was that he was very enthusiastic. He was a great assistance to me through this process. And um, but I got a call from a broker that somebody was interested in purchasing my dealership. And I said, well, I'll consider it under two conditions that they have to take the building uh, and they have to pay cash that I'm not holding paper for anybody because again, very uncertain times. And I could not trust that anybody just saying would run the dealership in the way that I would want it to be run and that I'd be stuck with a $9 million building and no business to really execute on that loan. And I uh, had found someone who came to be known to me as Bob Parsons, who started GoDaddy. So uh, obviously, Mr. Parsons had the uh, wherewithal to take the building and the business for cash. And so now he is the proud owner of Southern Thunder Harley-Davidson. Great story. And I have made my way back to optometry. Let's let's stay on this idea of selling businesses. I mean, that was a life-changing event for you. And you got back into optometry, which we're all grateful for. But I also know you have great concern about OD selling their businesses, maybe not always because it's the wrong reason, but that there are so many reasons. Um, what are your concerns? Well, probably... My, my overarching concern is that private practice is what has allowed us to be the profession that we've become. Massachusetts just had an expansion in glaucoma. Private practitioners are who drove that effort. When we had an, you know, expanded into therapeutics in Tennessee, private practitioners are who did that. And my concern is that the further that the decision makers get from the patient experience and seeing that patient in the chair in front of them, that it becomes more about a dollar and instead of about the well-being of the patient. So my, again, my concern is 
if we lose private practice, we lose those people who have that passion, not just about op optometry big, but that actual patient sitting in their chair, particularly in rural areas of these countries where optometrists are the only access to quality vision care that many people have. What happens? Where do we go from here? Do we think that the buyers of practices are encouraging doctors to still care about the patients enough to stay involved in the form of uh, state and national association memberships and lobbying efforts at the Capitol and so forth? I don't have any empiric data on that, but what's your percep perception? I think it is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, one of the things in my current position, I review every employment contract our students get. So I see employment contracts across, uh, you know, every modality that an optometrist practices in. And I can tell you that there are corporate and PE entities that are very supportive of optometry, paying their dues, their state dues, their local dues, um, paying their DEA fees. Um, not, I cannot speak to how supportive they necessarily are of giving them the time or the resources to support legislative efforts to expand scope. I would be speaking to something that I, I couldn't have data to back it up. It seems as though that we need to compel our colleagues, no matter what form of employed work they're in, that the only way anything gets done, to your point about therapeutics have been around since you've been in practice, that we remind everybody the way us old timers do, that none of this got handed to us, that every bit of this is our American Optometric Association and state associations doing the work the hard way, which is compelling legislators and those who write laws to understand that optometry is widely distributed, highly educated, and takes incredibly good care of patients. And it takes time. Sometimes it takes donations and political fashions that we don't like. Um, what would you add to that? Well, I would add a comment that is probably the single most powerful statement I have ever heard an optometrist make by Joe Ellis, my friend, my former student, and former AOA president. What has unorganized optometry ever done for you? Everything we have, everything we are has come out of organized optometry. That's not to say they're perfect. You know, we're listening today about, you know, once again, we're having a shift in the leadership in our country. We are not a perfect union. We strive towards being better. Same thing with our profession. Our national organizations are not perfect entities. We are not infallible individuals, but they are our best hope for the strength to move our profession forward. And not even that, just to maintain what we have achieved. But if we don't continue that, it's very easily, just with the stroke of a pen, how easy we could lose some of the privileges that many, many people have worked so hard to gain. They're also the proven group. That's that. In other words, the, the handwriting 
that is there is from the work that organized optometry did. Again, it didn't get handed to anybody. And uh, there's so many yeah. mentors that both you and I have that have been there and done it. And it's at, you know, we followed in suit. And I would agree that I think as the profession's headed toward a, um, I want to dictate my terms and locations and type of work, which I think is great. Um, it can also mean that it's a little bit of a, somebody else can handle the efforts on the legislative and uh, regulatory side. And it's easier, in my opinion, to work with a state association or ask over time to be part of the AOA than it is to serve on a school board or in a city council. And I'm not saying those are bad public service efforts, but um, we get to control right. what we control and, and without a voice, we can't control it at all. So I really appreciate you pointing that out. Well, and the thing is, if optometry is strong, if our practices are strong, that affords us the opportunity to serve on the school board. You know, that's one of the things that when people I try to convince or not convince, but educate the students about that, you know, as doctors, sometimes, again, we don't like that that business part that that's, you know, mercenary, maybe in our minds. That you know, I'm about healthcare. Well, the better your practice does, the better equipment you can provide, the better you can take care of your staff, the more you can support your uh, faith in philanthropy. You know, your success in practice allows you again to do those things that give you joy and make you answer your why. Yeah, you know, you're the director of the Hayes Center and. Uh, practice management guidance is given by a lot of different types of consultants. Could you give us a nugget of advice as people who are thinking about where from where to consume advice, how we should think about filtering it? Because you're right there dealing with the students every day and your alumni, uh, and, and, and everyone's got a, a good bit of advice for a nickel. How would you advise a doctor to think about how to take advice and from whom? Well, I first... Find someone who fits your philosophy. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm not everybody's flavor. I don't want to be everybody's flavor. Every group is not right for every practice. So, you know, it's much easier to pick up a phone call or pick up a phone, make a call. That price seems okay. Come and, you know, give me the magic. Sprinkle the fairy dust in my practice. Well, you know, their fairy dust may not be what's right for your practice. So I think you have to do some hard legwork to find a consultant, an advisor, a mentor that really shares your philosophy, that maybe you can see examples of what they've done that you admire, that, you know, are aspirational for you to find who's right. I have to say this, at the end of the day, you got to trust your gut. There is no person that knows your staff, knows your patients, knows your practice better than you do. But at the same time, there's a reason that you've reached out to, for a consultant. You've seen that there's something that can be improved. Maybe there's a problem. Uh, you have some particular challenge that you're is beyond what you feel comfortable moving forward with. So the, one of the biggest problems I see is people 
they do the homework, they get a great advisor, they get advice, and they don't execute. This is hard work. Nobody ever said this part of it is going to be easy. And particularly for it to be done well, it can be painful. You know, my daughter-in-law who just opened her practice when during the summer when we were having the conversations about, is this really what you want to do? Is that business owner, yes, you're the doctor, but you, you have staff that, you know, their children depend on you for their breakfast. Their children depend on you for the money that's going in the bank so they can further their education. They depend on you for their retirement, how they're going to live once they leave your place of business. Those are big responsibilities and we have to take them seriously. So it is incumbent upon us, again, for our businesses to be as successful, not only for ourselves, but for our staff and for our um, patients. But executing on what people do, but again, at the end of the day, you got to trust your gut. You can have some big, high-powered person, but, you know, again, I'm not telling you don't do what they tell you to do. If they tell you something and it doesn't feel right, ask what else. This isn't maybe right for my practice. Help me find a different way. But not following through, not having metrics, not, you know, having accountability once you decide to use a consultant is where I see people really just throw their money down the drain. Well, a quick shout out to our mutual friend, your former student, uh, Dr. Mike Rothschild, who introduced us and from Leadership OD delivers incredible insights. I'm not afraid to support Mike and what he does. He often speaks about this idea of regardless of from where you get your insights, you've got to have an execution plan. And I'm glad that you emphasized that. Yes. So, yeah. Go ahead. And again, it can stink. Yeah. And it can be a time suck, but, you know, it does pay out All good things are worth working for. <laughs> uh, right. Let's close with this. I don't have any idea if you have a personal motto or a way to live, but what might you share with others that would inspire them? Well, uh, as you might, you know, I'm sort of a type A personality, and I often quote Thomas Jefferson, the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's really good. You know, that making, I'm a firm believer that we make opportunity. You know, yes, luck happens once in a while, but we have to put ourselves in those positions to be there when luck comes looking for us. And that is through the day in, day out job of doing the hard work. Yeah, all you want is an at-bat, and, and, and we can talk to our kids about it, we can talk to the people we work with, uh, people that we want to work with in partnership in businesses, we want an at-bat. If you don't get into the batter's box, you don't have a chance. Uh, you might strike out, but you've right. got to get the at-bat. Um, Lisa, I have loved this conversation, and I really appreciate you sharing all these great stories. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. and. Uh... I've, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this and, you know, I hope that maybe something I've said has, in, you know, given someone the idea that maybe I too can take a chance 
and make a difference not only in my practice, but in my community and in the lives of other uh, people. We're grateful and optometry to have you as an example. Thank you. And for thank the audience, you. as always, thank you for attending the Sandbox Story. And until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.